Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, and we have been going through the book of Mark together in our morning services, and so far in our evenings we've been able to um, dive into And tonight, we'll take up a little bit more detail on one particular aspect of the subject we looked at this morning, which was the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness from Mark chapter 1. Matthew chapter 4, and let's start in verse number 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungry. And when the tempter came to him... He said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again, the devil taketh them up into an exceeding high mountain, and show them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now tonight, as we prepare our hearts for what the Lord has for us and has had for us in this Christmas season, I want to focus only on the last of these temptations. The last of these three temptations that we see in verse number 8 and on into verse 10. The devil takes Jesus up into an exceeding high mountain. Now, Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 4, recording this account, that the devil showed him these things in a moment of time. And whether this was some supernatural event or whatever it was, it was clearly the devil presenting a vision or some kind of depiction for Jesus to see of all the kingdoms of the world and, Luke says, the glory of them, the glory of those kingdoms. So all the splendor of the world at that time, of course, under the Pax Romana, the uh, the Roman Empire with all of its roads, all of its sophisticated construction, all of this in a moment Jesus would have seen. And notice what the devil says. All these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. So again, this is literally a deal with the devil. I want to reflect on that a little bit uh, this evening. And as I was thinking about this concept... I remembered a phrase that came to mind that I heard my father use on some occasion. My dad, just so that you know, was a guy who, when he was on the road, was always looking for a shortcut. I don't know if you are like that uh, kind of person, either yourself or you know someone who was. If there was a traffic jam and there was a way to get around the traffic jam, Roger J. Magnuson would be the one leading the charge, let me tell you. I sometimes uh, laugh as I think of the days that we were going somewhere 
and there would be a, a turn lane, right, where the exit ramp off the highway, and, uh, and sometimes it seemed like that, uh, that, that lane that goes off on the exit ramp went for at least a half mile down the right side the, 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 of the freeway on the shoulder because that was just the exit ramp where it went. And, and, uh, and that's, that's uh, my dad would have a little bit of a grin on his face. And sometimes he would say this, Whew, we cut a fat hog there. We cut a fat hog there. You know, I never really knew what that phrase meant, other than I took it to mean something good. You cut a fat hog. Well, I actually, for the first time today, looked up that idiom, and I actually found that, generally speaking, it means to bite off more than you can chew. It's like you cut maybe too fat a hog, and now you don't know what to do with all the meat. Well, that's not the way my dad was using it, and I did, in fact, see that in the Midwest, it's an idiom that means to make a very profitable business deal. I was like, aha, now I get the picture. Now I get the idiom to cut a fat hog. But again, I want you to think about that just idea. The idea of cutting a fat hog when it comes to a shortcut. And the very simple point I want to make for us tonight is that the devil loves to come with, to us with shortcuts. Shortcuts in which the upside, the ends, seem really promising and significant. And by comparison, the means, how we get to that end, the cost, the downside, seems temporary and very, very minimal. And this was exactly the shortcut that the devil offered to Jesus. And it's the one that he will continue to offer you. And the point that I want to make this evening is that when we see how Jesus responded to that shortcut, notice what he said. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. What I want to talk about tonight is the power of worship, a worshipful heart, to resist the temptation to a shortcut. And the title of the message this evening, I'll simply have it, The Defense of a Worshipful Heart. The Defense of a Worshipful Heart. And my premise simply tonight is that following the example of Jesus Christ, when we cultivate in ourselves a worshipful heart that is submitted to the Lordship of our God, we can resist this temptation just like Jesus did. Let's start, first of all, by looking at the temptation that the devil put before Jesus. Because it is a very significant one. Again, in here in Matthew 4, this is presented as the pinnacle of the temptations. After this temptation, the devil left Jesus. And again, notice what the devil offered. All the kingdoms and all the glory of those kingdoms. Now, this has led some theologians to ask, does the devil actually have that authority? Because if you look over in Luke chapter 4, in the Luke account of this passage, Luke adds that the devil said, I can give these kingdoms to whomever I will. Whoever I want to give them to, I give them. Now, in a certain sense, we might say the devil was right. The Bible calls him the prince of this world. Of course, in a certain sense, the devil is a liar. He's a deceiver. And he does not have that ultimate authority because, as we read in Scripture, God is ultimately the one who sets up 
and the one who puts down rulers. And we can take great comfort in that, that no matter what the collective voice of America says about a ruler, that ultimately God is the one who superintends and supervenes in all of it. But ultimately, this is what the devil promises to Jesus. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. But notice what he required of Jesus. This, again, is the Faustian bargain, the deal with the devil. He says, Get the, he says all these things will I give thee if, if, there's the condition, thou wilt fall down and worship me. Now, again, what is he saying when he says, all you have to do is worship me? Sometimes when we think of worship, we have the idea that it's connected only to a particular kind of service or a particular kind of singing or musical rendition. We think of praise and worship services. We think worship being something that we do in song or in music. But we need to come into a broader biblical context of what worship means because, again, what Satan is requesting of Jesus is that he fall down and bow. The, really, the idea of the word worship in Scripture carries the idea of bowing before someone, of prostrating yourself, of submitting to someone. So the deal then becomes very simple. You submit to me, you express your loyalty to me in this one moment, and I will give you everything that is under my power. Transfer your loyalty to me in this one particular moment of time, and I will respond by giving you what you might desire. And what I want to think about for a moment here is what the devil was really offering to Jesus. Because, of course, we know from Scripture that Jesus is the Word in the beginning who was with God and who was God. All things were made by him. He is the King. And we see that the great end of God's redemptive story is when all the world, when all of humanity will be united under the common lordship of Christ. In the words of Philippians 2, that one day every knee will bow of things in heaven, things under heaven, things under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So the kingship of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, when all the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, is coming. Jesus is receiving the kingdom, and that is inevitable. So what exactly is Satan offering Jesus here? He's not offering Jesus something that Jesus was not already entitled to and indeed will receive. He was offering Jesus something as a shortcut. What he was saying is effectively, Jesus, there is a way to receive the kingdom, the kingdoms, that doesn't require suffering. That doesn't require humiliation. That doesn't require rejection. That doesn't require the cross. That doesn't require your bloody death. It was a shortcut. You transfer loyalty to me. And I will ensure that you have what you claim to be entitled to at a far less significant cost than he would demand of you. It was a shortcut. You can skip the process 
you can get away from the cross, you can have that to which you are entitled now. And that's why I think this temptation that was before Christ, secondly, is such a common temptation before us. Because, frankly, this deal from the devil is, seems to be always in front of us. What is the benefit to be gained? What is the fat hog to be cut in any particular time? There is a particular end that the devil attempts to convince us will be significant. It will be meaningful. It will, in fact, be very good. Don't forget, what did the end result that the devil was promising Jesus involve? Whose kingdom? Jesus's. He was saying, Jesus, you get to be king. I'm going to give all of these to you, and you get all the glory. You get the kingdom, and you get the glory. You just need to transfer your loyalty to me. In that sense, it would seem like a good outcome. And in the same way, the devil is continually putting before us shortcuts that seem to have a very promising end result, and an even not ungodly end result. Something good, even for the cause of Jesus that might be received. And notice again the other side of this Faustian bargain, this deal with the devil. The price is modest, and it's only temporary. Just as Satan said, just fall down and worship me, just this one time. Just fall down right here and worship me, and you'll have everything to which you're entitled immediately. So often, Satan puts in front of us these kind of modest and temporary, or at least seemingly so, demands. I want us to just note here for just a moment, Satan rarely puts in front of us the kind of direct demand to worship me. Very often, he gets at it with a slightly different approach. Because again, it goes back to what worship is. Worship is not just falling down and, 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 uh, and, and a direct kind of, I am now following Satan with my life. What Satan actually was asking for Jesus was to reject the worship of God, to step out of his submission from God, out of his obedience to God, and direct his loyalty elsewhere. And in the same way, the devil demands from us a transfer of loyalty. If you step out of God's path on this one small area, if you make this one small compromise, the end will be truly significant. Saul, King Saul in the Old Testament is an example of this. You remember? Why did God reject Saul as king and said, I'm looking for a man who's after my own heart? God wanted a king after his own heart. Why did Saul prove himself not to be after a man after God's own heart? Because Saul was willing to make compromises when the end result seemed appropriate. When his people were being scattered from him and he was supposed to go fight the Philistines and Samuel seemed to be coming late to offer the sacrifice ordered of God, Saul said, the end result looks very catastrophic here unless I compromise. And so what did he do? He decided to take it upon himself. And in that compromise was ultimately a rejection of God. What else do we see? When God just commanded the utter destruction 
of one of the enemies of the people of the land. And Saul said, look, I have destroyed everything. But the people, the people wanted us to leave the animals for sacrifice to God. And in that one small compromise from what God had ordered of him, we saw his worship. He was not a man after God's own heart. He was not a man truly submitted to God. Another man who comes to mind is Solomon. Do you remember Solomon as, of course, being a man who for so much of his life was a man after God's own heart, a man blessed with incredible wisdom? You can read about him in the book of 1 Kings. But 1 Kings 3 tells us a very important compromise that Solomon made. Verse 1 tells us, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This would have been a very logical thing to do. From a strategic and geopolitical sense, this would have been a, a brilliant thing to do. You mean I can cut a fat hog with the king of Pharaoh, one of the great empires of the land, and we can be at peace with each other? In fact, we read in 1 Kings the trade that was established between Israel and Egypt and how profitable it was to the people of Israel. It was a really good economic deal. But there was one other thing to the deal. And took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house. What did he do? This alliance was made through marriage. He married Pharaoh's daughter. And again, for years, perhaps for decades, it seemed like it was working out great. The kingdom was thriving. She had her own house. He was married to her. It all seemed to be doing well. In fact, we read in 1 Kings chapter 9 that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burnt it with fire and slain the Canaanites that dwelt in the city and given it for a present unto his daughter, Solomon's wife. That's a pretty good father-in-law. That's a pretty good father-in-law. Hey, King Solomon, how about I go wipe out your enemies, clear them utterly away from this, and here's a present. I'll give you this city. Seems like a great deal. Solomon thought he was cutting a fat hog. But what happened in his compromise? Of course, the compromise was that God had said, do not intermarry with the pagan people from around you. When you intermarry, they will steal your heart and you will turn aside to other gods than me. Don't do it. And yet in that one compromise which Solomon did, we probably know the end of the story. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 11, but King Solomon loved many strange women together with the daughter of Pharaoh. You see, it went beyond the daughter of Pharaoh. We read women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites. In fact, Scripture tells us he ultimately had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Do you know why compromises don't work? Do you know why deals with the devil don't work? Because the devil tells us you only need to compromise this once and then you'll get the end that you desire. But King Solomon shows us that once you take the first step of compromise, the next step of compromise gets easier and easier and easier until you ultimately are utterly bound in the compromise. One step that seemed so economically and geopolitically and strategically wise. I marry her and Israel prospers. And it's only one small step of compromise. The end result was that Solomon could not check his compromising bent. And it ended up utterly destroying him 
and ultimately destroying the kingdom. Now, why do I say this is a common temptation? Well, I don't look around here and see any kings making geopolitical compromises for strategic reasons. But I do see human beings like myself who are tempted in ways big and small to compromise aspects of submission to God for ends that seem lawful and just and righteous. And we have heard it said a million times, the ends do not justify the means. And yet often we are bombarded with the thought, well, just this one means may be okay if the ends are good. We see this in church life. In church life, in our current church growth uh, kind of mentality. We have a kind of focus on building churches, building our, our, our ability to minister to other people. And oftentimes the temptation can be, well, to get this bigger church, to do this, we need to take this step or this step of compromise. And friends, that, that step might involve a bigger church. The problem is we very rarely know how to get off the treadmill of compromise. And we wonder why churches that once seem to be strong and standing on biblical doctrine ultimately become wishy-washy on those very things. It's because once you get on the treadmill of compromise, you have a hard time getting off, even when it comes to very clear black and white areas in Scripture. We see this in other things. I think one of the areas that Christians are tempted to compromise in this area uh, more than many others in a broader sense is in the area of politics. We have uh, an increasing aspiration to power. Two different sides, two different competing visions that recognize that the only way to, to, to uh, wage effective political warfare is to wield the levers of power. And so therefore there becomes an absolute bent on power and on authority, no matter the cost. And I saw this recently. You may have seen the news of um, Donald Trump Jr., the, the former president's son, at a very prominent um, youth conservative rally. And he said some very striking words. He was talking about cancel culture, about this idea of people being canceled. And he said this. He said, as long as cancer culture exists... He said, quote, we better be playing the same game. We've turned the other cheek, and I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but he said, listen to this, but it's gotten us nothing. It's gotten us nothing. Okay, it's gotten us nothing while we've ceded ground in every major institution. It's gotten us nothing. Now again, I want you to listen very carefully to what is being suggested. Turn the other cheek. We understand the character of a Christian, right? Of what Jesus called us in the way we love our enemies and bless them that persecute us and we pray for them that despitefully use us. We understand this Christian mentality, but it's gotten us nowhere. And so it's time that we simply fight on the same battleground. Now again, what are we suggesting? We are suggesting that there is a certain end. If we only waged, if we only wielded the levers of power, we could do wonderful things. And what's keeping us back from that, 
may indeed be a sense of Christian virtue or value. And therefore, the means to that end simply needs to be swept aside so that we can have a virtuous end. Now again, the problem with that is if we sacrifice or compromise one aspect of our Christian character in pursuit of the levers of political power, guess what's going to follow? We are going to be required to make increasing steps of compromise, to defend increasingly unchristian behaviors, or simply to stay quiet about criticizing them as long as it's on our side. Why? Because power, political power, is the most important thing. Well, friends, sticking to Christian virtues, Christian values, Christian, a Christian mode of relating to one's enemies and one's opponents rarely gets us places in terms of living in this present world. The New Testament, I would argue, makes that clear. The same is true in our workplaces. I, in my own workplace, have been tempted or I've seen others who have been tempted to say, I'm, I'm young in my career. I just need to keep my head down. I don't want to stand out as being an out-and-out -out Christian right now. I can't speak out in my workplace for the gospel or, or profess what I believe. Someday I will get to a position of authority. Someday I will get to a place of security in my work life, and then I'll speak out. Then I will be in a position to make a difference, but not now. And friends, you can't win that deal with the devil. Because as I've seen, if you don't speak out when you're junior as a matter of compromise, guess what happens? You're never going to be secure enough to start speaking out. You're never going to have a significant enough position, enough confidence in that to be a light for the gospel. When you try to make a deal with the devil, it's not going to work. Because always there's going to be another step of compromise to take. And we could simply go down the list in our family life, in our relational life with one another, in the way we raise our children, in the way we relate to our neighbors. When we do not live out our Christian convictions, and most importantly, our Christian character, in the way we love our enemies, in the way we pursue their good at all costs, and in the way that we seek to live peaceably with all men, in the way we relate to insult and hostility, in the way we are a light for Jesus Christ wherever we are called to be, no matter the cost, no matter the cost, whatever it is, that step of compromise will not lead to the glorious end that the devil holds out to us in this pursuit of righteousness and justice. So this temptation I, I submit to you is not just one before Jesus Christ. It's one before all of us, day after day, and in ways that look very different for many of us, depending on our circumstances. And that's why I want to look very briefly and finally here at what I'm going to call the tried and true defense. How do we resist this deal with the devil? Well, as you know, the deal with the devil has been a part of fiction. As I've been referencing Faust making a deal with Mephistopheles, this demon. And there's been a certain fascination with just tricking the devil, outsmarting him. I took a class when I was in law school uh, uh, on um, Icelandic fiction and Icelandic sagas. And I didn't read this one there, but I've, I've seen it referenced. A man, a, a priest from Iceland that was written about, he needed to get from Europe back to Iceland. And so he made a deal with the devil. 
and he hopped on. The devil transformed into a seal, and he hopped onto the seal's head and, and was transported across to Iceland. But this priest was really smart. He could make a deal with the devil. And so you know what he did? He started reading the Bible to him on the trip over to Iceland. And when they got near shore, he bopped him on the head with his Bible. And the seal sank to the bottom and the priest swam to shore and was celebrated for outsmarting the devil. Well, there's some really creative fiction for you. But let me, let me, let me just suggest that your attempts to outsmart the devil in making these kind of compromises will not prevail. What is the only tried and true defense? Notice what Jesus says. Will you look with me at verse 10? Jesus said to him, Get thee hence, Satan, get away. For it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Now how would you have responded to Satan if you were Jesus? And he presents all the kingdoms in the glory of the world and says, it's yours. One thing that he could have done is he could have challenged the ends. He could have said, Satan, I'm the king. You have no ultimate authority to any of this. Your ends are nonsense. He could have said, I don't need you, Satan. I am following a different path. He could indeed have said, Satan, you have far less power than you think you do. But what I want you to notice is that Jesus resisted this temptation with none of those focuses on ends, the ultimate ends that Satan was promising about kingdoms and glories and the like. What did Jesus strictly focus on? He strictly focused only on means. He didn't say, no, Satan, you can't have it. Uh, I, I don't need that kingdom from you. He said, no, Satan, the means are wrong. Why? Because thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. He was quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. And you say, why is this important? Why is this so significant? I'm convinced it's for this reason. It's because the devil is very good at twisting ends to be so righteous and so just and so important that we should just overlook the means. That's really what the devil is trying to get us to say. Yes, it might be a small compromise, but don't think about that too hard. Don't even focus on that compromise. Look at how amazing the means are if you just sacrifice your integrity in this one area. But Jesus doesn't have any time for that. He doesn't even focus on the end. He says, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to look at the means. And the means that you are asking me to take, Satan, is unbiblical and it's wrong because I am only and we only are to worship the Lord God, not you. You deserve no loyalty. He deserves all loyalty. You see, how does that relate to us in the temptations that we experience? It means beware of trying to justify whether a situation is right or wrong in the moment depending on the effect it might have. Beware. If you try to balance out your conduct based on the future effect, a good effect even it might have or not have, beware. You are in the trap that trap is closing around your foot faster than you can imagine. Look instead at the means. Look instead at the very next step in front of you. If I do this, is that right or is it wrong? Is it an action of integrity or not? 
is this decision going to glorify God looking only at the decision, not its effect, not its practical consequence, looking only at the decision, is this right or is it wrong? And when we look at it the way that Jesus did, what is the immediate word, action, or, or thought that is being placed in front of me? And is it submissive to the will of God? Is it worship? Is it a worshipful action? We will have a defense to the devil trying to flash in front of us the effect that it might have. You know, friends, how often that would help us when we're thinking about things like sending out a text to someone, speaking a word to someone at our workplace or in our home, putting out a tweet on the internet, writing an email to someone. If we just step back and said, wait, before I push send, before I hit publish, is this godly? Is this consistent with my Christian character and ethic and integrity? We would have a far better gauge than simply trying to look and focus more on the ultimate effect we think it might have. Now that's where I want to ask us whether our heart is in this right place. Because again, what Jesus says is, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. What allowed Jesus to defeat all of these temptations was a heart that was completely submitted to the lordship and the will of his father. And I just want us to leave us with just this one verse from Scripture. James 4, 7 says these words. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you know you're resisting the devil's temptation in your life comes down first to submitting to God? to cultivating in your life a worshipful heart that is submitted to his will, to his order, to his integrity, to his Christian ethic. And when you submit yourselves to God in, in humility with a worshipful heart, you will be prepared to resist the devil and his temptations and see him flee from you. Now, how do we submit? How do we cultivate a worshipful heart that is submissive to God? It comes in all of the things that we understand in our Bibles. It is not a mere experience or emotion that we get in a worship service. It is cultivating a heart that is saturated in the word of God, that seeks to allow the word of God to be our authority, speaking down to us and directing our behavior. It is being sensitive to the Holy Spirit who applies, <clears throat> excuse me, that word of God to our daily lives. But above all, <clears throat> it is a heart that has the priority of worship and of submission to God. And it is therefore the heart that is prepared to have a defense to the wiles of the devil. So friends, again, remember the defense of this worshipful heart Beware the temptation that says focus on the effect this conduct can have and look past what means are required to get it there. Beware cutting a fat hog when cutting a fat hog requires overlooking some aspect of your Christian character and of your Christian integrity. And may each one of us in this Christmas season cultivate that worshipful heart that is submitted to God and to him alone. Let's pray.